Pop 57, Little Fires Everywhere with Abby Wright. That's me. Welcome back to Pop. I'm Ken Mills, your host. Pop is where we look at the people and the personalities that make up pop culture and all that is going on all around us today. I am joined by Abby Wright. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ken. I'm so glad to be here. And you have a very interesting career. Glad to have you here. You are a senior editor at Read It Forward. And before joining Read It Forward, you spent your career at Modern Bride, Glamour, O, the Oprah magazine, and you helped launch Oprah's Book Club 2.0, right? I did, yeah. I have uh, had a really fun career in magazines first, um, starting with bridal magazines, which, you know, there's never a sad day at a bridal magazine, um, to oh, the Oprah magazine, where I went from fashion and style to working on the book section at oh, the Oprah magazine. So the reading room section was where Oprah's book club landed after she finished her show in 2011. So mm. it was really fun to conceive of what does the book club look like now without the studio audience. Um, so that was really, really fun to get to talk about books for the Oprah audience. And then I went to Glamour, um, but really missed talking and writing about books. So I found my way back to this website called Read It Forward, which of course is owned by Penguin Random House. I get to help people find their next great read. So really, I think I have a dream job. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I look at myself as a pontificator and a pop culture archaeologist, kind of like a pop culturologist, right? <laughs> I like that. And I know you are like that, too. You, It says in your bio that you have your finger on the pulse when it comes to the pop culture and publishing world. So it, it's got to be true, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the way that we consume culture these days is um, we hear about things that other people are talking about, watching, listening to, and certainly reading. And I think once something gets that buzz, it's really hard to, if it sounds like it's up your alley, I think it's hard to ignore. So I like to meet people where they are, which is binge watching and listening to podcasts and being a reader um, and help them find something, at least in the book world, that might suit their tastes. Mm -hmm. I am so glad to have you here and I'm glad that Lindsay hooked us up and it's fantastic to have you here. And today we are talking about Little Fires Everywhere, which started out life as a 2017 novel by American author Celeste Ng. It is her second novel and takes place in Shaker Heights, Ohio, but it doesn't stop there. It became a miniseries on Hulu, right? Yep. It is uh, just a really interesting program. How did this come upon your radar? Well, I first came to Celeste Ng's novel right when it came out in 2017. Um, I was a huge fan of her first novel, Everything I Never Told You. And I just think she's an absolutely masterful writer. And so, of course, I was eager to see what her sophomore novel would be all about. And I fell in love with it. It's 
full of drama. It's full of family stories, um, adoption, abortion, teen, romance. I mean, it's really got a lot packed into one book. And uh, so I knew I loved the novel. And then when I heard it was getting adapted to be a limited series on Hulu, I absolutely knew I was going to tune in. And in fact, I created a podcast all about watching the show and reading the book and what are the differences between the two. And so that's my podcast, The Adaptables. So if people want to do a deep dive, follow you over at The Adaptables Podcast. But today we're going to do an ultra spoilery, is that a word? Spoilery? Ultra spoilery edition of Little Fires Everywhere. And we need to set the scene a little bit. Let's talk about the reception that this has had, because for three weeks in April of 2020, Little Fires Everywhere was the number one title on the New York Times Best Fiction Seller list. So that's pretty good. That's nothing to sneeze at, right? No, I mean, certainly the book was on the New York Times bestseller list for months uh, when it first came out. And in fact, the book didn't go into paperback for a very long time because the hardcover kept selling and selling and selling and selling. So the book was already a huge bestseller. And then following the show, uh, which was released on March 17th, the book, of course, returned to the bestseller list. So I think people are hungry for, you know, the what's better, the book or the show, and how can I compare the two? And I think a lot of people return to the original source material when they find a show that they love that turns out to be based on a book. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things about this is that I've done a bit of studying between the book and the show, and I'm just going to put my cards on the table and say right up front, I think I like what was done with the show in many ways. Okay. Because it seems like there were natural themes that were inherent in the book that seem to be expanded on. And there are possibilities for storytelling that it kind of lent itself to. You know what I mean? I do. And since we are ultra spoilery, we're going to read a little description here. And this this only cuts to the, to the small of it, right? It doesn't get through the whole thing. <laughs> In Shaker Heights, a placid progressive suburb of Cleveland, everything is planned from the layout of the winding roads to the color of the houses to the successful lives its residents will go on to lead. And no one embodies this spirit more than Elena Richardson, whose guiding principle is playing by the rules. Enter Mia Warren an artist and single mother who arrives in this idyllic bubble with her teenage daughter, Pearl, who rents a house from the Richardsons. Soon, Mia and Pearl become more than tenants. All four of the Richardson children are drawn to the mother-daughter pair, but Mia carries with her a mysterious past and a disregard for the status quo that threatens to upend this carefully ordered community. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, dun dun dun. It says that Little Fires Everywhere explores the weights of secrets, the nature of art and identity, and the ferocious pull of motherhood, and the danger of believing that following the rules can avert disaster. <laughs> and right now, one of the biggest shows on television is This Is Us, right? Mm hmm, definitely. 
It's a show that everyone loves, which it's also a show that should be sponsored by Kleenex, right? <laughs> you should you should get with every episode a new box. So <laughs> but in a way that the Pearsons of This Is Us is this family who is all about love and has that at the center. This is almost, sadly, a bizarro version of the same thing. Mm-hmm where it seems like the Pearsons' love will always rule out. And it seems like, in this, it seems like love has a cost all the time. And whereas in This Is Us, love has a cost, yes. But here it's like, if you love me, you'll follow me. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Definitely, Elena Richardson likes to play by the rules. And um, like Shaker Heights is a planned community, the first planned community in the United States. Uh, Elena Richardson wants her life to be planned out perfectly, as well as her children's lives. And, um, you know, we know just as well as anyone that when you try to plan, um, you know, things don't always go according to plan. And so this is, I think the moment is captured when Elena's life and her children's lives are sort of thrown into turmoil. And we look at what happens to the family unit when that occurs. So I think it's not, I don't think it's as black and white as sort of love with the Pearsons and, um, you know, something opposite to that with the Richardsons. Uh But I do think we catch this family at a moment of deep turmoil and we don't know how they progress forward after their house burns down but i am hopeful that you know this literally this fiery ending to the book and to the show causes the family to readjust and re-examine some of their previous behaviors that and tons of therapy bills i see that <laughs> in the future so for sure that goes without saying i think yeah now you're not spoiling anything because that's the first thing that happens <laughs> exactly it's the first line of the book and and they do that in the show as well uh we see the house on fire and in the book it's interesting we i believe the entire time we know who has started the fire and it's up to us to figure out to read the book and try to understand why this happened Mm -hmm. now the show I think, paces it a little differently. They are interested more in the mystery, which keeps you tuning in from episode to episode. Which we won't reveal. Exactly. We won't reveal. Um, you know the, f- the house is on fire. You don't know how it got there. And so that is, it could be, the show lets you believe it could be any number of suspects, um, which I think is a fun, suspenseful aspect that the show really adds. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple things right off the top for me. This starting always gives me huge anxiety. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't even want to have to think about fires, right? Uh, but just seeing all these things burning over the opening credits, and it's just like, ah, stop that. It's weird as you go on through the show. You find yourself going like, oh, I saw that thing in the opening credits. You know, yeah. this this thing on fire that it just appears at some point, right? Yeah. 
there's something really cool about this. Uh, there's a lot of other characters, not just the people that play parts on the screen, but other characters. For example, where Celeste Ng grew up, Shaker Heights, where this takes place, Shaker Heights in itself is a character. <laughs> Definitely. Just as much as anybody that's walking and talking on the screen. And Shaker Heights was supposed to be this planned, idyllic community. And it really was an aim for a utopia in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Initially. <laughs> yeah. And I think that at its heart, it still wants to be. But when anything gets corrupted, I don't care if it's love, religion, whatever. When something gets changed from something good to something not so good, there's always a price to pay. Exactly. Yep. And you got to remember when this is happening. This takes place in the 90s. And right now, the 90s seems to be the hot spot as far as, uh, you know, whether it was in the 70s when we were doing Happy Days in Greece and stuff like that. Everything was based, you know, 20 years before. So now we are at the point <laughs> where we can now talk about what happened in the 90s, right? You had the fantastic, wonderful show, Everything Sucks, that was on Netflix. It was sadly canceled after one season. And this is a nice companion piece, you know, almost... Uh... By the way, what are your thoughts on Everything Sucks? Anything? I loved it. I'm devastated that it was canceled. Um, honestly, I think it might be time for a rewatch. Me too. It's it's always always a great time to watch Everything Sucks on Netflix. Bring it back. Come on. Hashtag renew everything sucks. But this also takes place during that same time period, roughly. Yep. Another character that is in this show, and kudos to the people who are behind this part of it, but the music of the show is just absolutely amazing. Oh, I completely agree. The music was stunning. Yeah, it's almost like its own character as well. Definitely. I mean, the book and the show are both set in the 90s, and I think we have a lot of really smart cover songs that happen uh, in this in this show. I mean, I can think of two of my favorites, which is the Marcy Playground Sex and Candy cover that we get in the first episode, and we also have an amazing cover of Meredith Brooks' Bitch. Uh, towards the end of the series um, and both of those are towards the end of the episode and they absolutely make you feel all the feels um, while also transporting you back into the 90s and yet it feels very modern as well mm -hmm. um, so I thought the music was so smartly done and the music was by Mark Isham and Isabella Summers and uh, she's of course the keyboardist for Florence and the Machine and the soundtrack is just fantastic. There's a couple different ways you can do this. Of course, you can go to Amazon, you can go to iTunes, you can also Spotify if you want. And as we mentioned earlier, there is the mixture of the stuff that was recorded for ambient noises in the scenes and stuff like that, or background interstitial type music. But then there's things like you mentioned, the modern covers of the songs from the 90s. For example, Alanis Morissette's version of uninvited oh my god it is so powerfully done
Uninvited, a cover of the Alanis Morissette classic by Belle Saint off the Little Fires Everywhere soundtrack. We are only playing samples, of course, because you should support artists and music. The soundtrack of Little Fires Everywhere is available everywhere. (laughs) The music in this is as much a character as anybody on the screen. It underscores what is going on in the plot, right? Like a Greek chorus. Mm Mm-hmm. We will put a link in the show notes that has a website where you can go to tunefind.com and find every song that was used in the little fires everywhere. So mm. we will check that out. Look for that in the show links. There was another great cover of um, In the Air Tonight, which was like hauntingly done. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, and of course, it maintains the drums. So, And it seems to me that the music in a lot of ways seemed to be about the two daughters that I'll specifically mention. There's Izzy, the daughter of Elena, and then there's Pearl, the daughter of Mia. And it seems like to me a lot of those songs seems to focus on those two, right? And there's all this battles between not only more so the Hulu miniseries uh, about racism, for example, 
and uh, sexism and things like that. There's a lot more that you can see, for example. Yes. I mean, I think it's so interesting. This is one of the really cool elements that the show adds um, that wasn't present in the book, which was the casting of of Carrie Washington as Mia and her daughter Pearl as African-American. And I think having these characters in the show adds a whole other layer of racial tension to this plot, which I think upon seeing it, you can't think about it any other way. Mm -hmm. What was present in the book is that there is a lot of class tension between Mia and Elena poor versus rich, but to add a a black versus white racial tension between these characters, I think, especially as we view it through the lens of Black Lives Matter today in 2020, uh, I think it really was so, so well done. And in my interview on my podcast, The Adaptables, with the author Celeste Ng, she talks about how that casting changed her conception of her own characters. And now, you know, she she can't hardly see them any other way other than how they've been portrayed on the show, which I think mm-hmm. is pretty cool. That's why I kind of tend to lean towards that at this point, because it almost seems like it's the definitive version for me. But if somebody's only read the book to them, that's their thing. It's kind of like whatever you came into it on. Right. You know what I mean? Well, Celeste Ng says it best herself, I think, which is that an adaptation is like a great cover song. Mm -hmm. And so you expect the cover song to incorporate, you know, the same lyrics and a bit of the same melody and through line. But ultimately, it's its own beast and it's its own piece of art. And you expect it to be different. Otherwise, why do it? So she really, when I asked her, was it tough to see the changes that they made to your artwork? She said, no, I think it's so cool. It's like a great cover song. Uh So let's break down our two families because that's where we start, right? You've got Reese Witherspoon, who plays Elena Richardson. She is a journalist and a mother of four teenagers. I'm not sure which she would say she is first, like if she were to pronounce that. For Mm. example, she's very proud of her work that she's done as a journalist, but her kids are her pride and joy. But it's almost like her kids are a pride and joy only in the sense of how they reflect on her or from her. Yeah, I think that's really accurate. Um, I think if I had to guess, I would say that she is a mother first, but Mm -hmm. only because... She had ambitions um, to work, you know, at the at the Plain Dealer, the the big paper in Cleveland. And she really, her fourth child, Izzy, um, sort of hampered those dreams. And she, we see in the show, you know, she doesn't get promoted. And she's really sort of held back um, to this small town paper. And she loves being a journalist and loves doing what she does. I think it defines... Um, a part of who she is, but I know that she had bigger ambitions at one point um, that she just wasn't able to achieve by also, you know, being a mom to four kids. Mm-hmm. And her husband is played by Joshua Jackson. Oh, Joshua Jackson. Oh my God. As Bill Richardson. And we may know him from Fringe or Dawson's Creek where he was Pacey. And you get to see him walk around in his underwear a lot. 
That was my favorite part, honestly. I have such a crush on Joshua Jackson, and I loved him ever since Dawson's Creek days. And it's so funny to see that we've all grown up, and now (laughs) Pacey is playing a dad uh, with extreme dad bod energy. So uh, I thought he was was great as Bill and provided some real 3D-ness to a character that read a little bit flat to me in the book. And one of the things as I was watching this, I was like, please don't let, because as a male Caucasian, often we are the bad guys, both in real life (laughs) 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 and and in media, right? And I was just like, please don't let this guy be a complete fucking jerk off. You know what I mean? And I was so happy to find out that he wasn't really a really badly screwed up person. No. To me, he seems fairly normal compared to Elena Richardson, his wife. Yes, I think um, I think he is a, the strong and silent type um, and sort of is a, is a nice foil to his um, wife, who's a little bit uh, all over the place. Um, in the show, it's funny, he, he picks up smoking again, which is... Um, that's his sort of fatal flaw. <laughs> but he is a good lawyer and he's a good dad and he's invested in his family. And he's really, he is the one that sort of bought into Elena's plan in in the beginning um, and really decides to settle down and shake her and give her the life that she wants um, in this community with this big house and these four kids. So he has bought into that idea of the sort of safety of this family and he gets pissed when she gets a little deranged a little that is not uh (laughs) i think you're not uh describing that properly but we'll move on so there are four kids and there's lexi the oldest and she's a senior in high school she has a boyfriend who is a person of color and i mentioned that because we'll talk about it later and Trip Richardson, who is a all-around man about campus, the jock, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got who I'm going to describe as the the middle kid, Moody Richardson. He's a well-meaning and kind person. He's the one who introduces Pearl to his family and develops a crush on her. Out of all the characters in this, I see myself in him, right? Mm, yeah. Because... I was more like that as a kid, the the guy who has this huge love for this girl and hoping beyond hopes that it works out, right? Uh, he seems to be very sensitive as well. Yes. And then we have the youngest, Izzy Richardson, and she is the black sheep of the family. Not so much from her father, I feel. No, they have a really nice bond. He mm-hmm. He, Bill can see Izzy for who she is and doesn't uh, judge her for it. Mm -hmm. And across town, we have Mia Warren, the head of the other family. And she's a photographer who does artwork. She does unique prints. She lives a transient lifestyle, and there's a reason for it, which you find out. It unspills as the story is told. Pearl is her daughter, and she is the same age as Elena's child, Moody. Pearl's entire life has been kind of spent with her mother running. So those are kind of like the two main families that we deal with, right? Yes. I don't know if you ever watched Fear. 
No, I never did. The movie with Reese Witherspoon and Mark Wahlberg, it's a, it's a thriller. It's a psychotic thriller, but I almost get the feeling in my head canon that the, that, that movie made back in the 90s was the same character as <laughs> she was. As Elena. Up, which it explains why she's so crazy. But no, um, that's just my head canon silliness. Anybody out there that saw Fear is like going, aha, I know what you're talking about. So. You've got Elena who is just wrapped way too tight. And she is her mother made over, right? Mm-hmm. But she's also, she feels her mother but liberated. <laughs> and her mother did things to try to help with the civil rights movement. Her mother did all these things. And she's trying to do all of these things. And I, I wouldn't say it's virtue signaling, would you? It's uh, she, She's actually trying to do a lot of the right things. She is. Um, she is trying to, I think for Elena, the, the verb to help people um, feels really good for her. And it is also capital, social capital, and a way to feel some less guilt about her own privilege, I think. And she always keeps score. So she remembers what she does for other people and will come to collect on that if she needs to. So it's a little bit of, um, you know, genuine wanting to help her community, but also she wants it to be known that she's helping her community. So I feel like if the story took place today, you know, she would be volunteering, but taking selfies for Instagram while she's doing it, just so you Mm. know she was there. I can see that. And the first time that Elena and Mia encounter one another, they don't even realize it, right? Right. Exactly. Elena sees a woman sleeping in her car and decides to just call the police and shake her just to check it out and make sure everything's okay. Um, And, of course, we later in the show see... Elena uh, sleeping in her car and she's woken up by a police officer and just the mirroring, the dichotomy between those two experiences, one for a white woman and one for a black woman are very different um, when dealing with the police. Mm -hmm. And Elena meets her later, not realizing it's the same person that she had already had rousted, right, by the local uh, police officials. And she rents her a house. And she feels that this is a good thing for her to do. And she even lowballs the rent for them, right? Exactly. So Mia and Pearl um, have been moving basically every few months since Pearl was born. And what Pearl really wants is a bedroom of her own. She wants a place to go to high school. She wants friends that she can keep. Um, She wants a bed of her very own. And a wall to paint more than one wall. And um, her mom finally acquiesces and says, you know, we can settle down here and shake her. And they rent a room from Elena. So Elena turns out to be their landlord. And these two are like two asteroids that were bound to run into each other. You almost get the feeling like, uh, you know, it, it it wouldn't have been really a cheap way of writing if you would have had them like cut each other off in traffic when they were 
like eight years old or something. You know what I mean? Like this is a feud that's been going on forever. That's how it feels. But there's so much weight that these two are carrying when they bump into each other that there is no walking away from it. It's 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 not it's going to be uh, burnt ground by the time this is done. Literally. Yes. Um, I think Mia represents everything that is opposite to what Elena stands for. You know, Elena is all about the plan and um, being perfect. And Mia is itinerant and an artist and messy and um, unapologetic and very self-assured. And I think that feels at odds to what Elena is is made of. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they're going to become fast friends at some point. It seems like Mia is a bit more standoffish a bit. She's trying to size up Elena. Like, are you for real or what's going on with you? You know what I mean? And Elena is doing everything she can. She's full court hard pressing to try to get Mia to trust her and open up and become part of her world to even including her in her society book club. Right. Yes. I loved that book club scene in the show. It's not in the book. Um, but that's actually where we get our cameo from the author, Celeste Ng, who mm-hmm. is there at book club. And um, that is a very sweet moment where we can see that they're not, it's not black and white. Um, they immediately hate each other. But there is some mutual respect. And in fact, um, Mia comes to Elena's rescue in the show when they are talking about the book or the play, The Vagina Monologues, and Elena hasn't done the reading. And Mia actually comes to her rescue and sort of saves her. And that is something that sparks a friendship between them um, and sort of a mutual respect and admiration, which eventually goes to shit. But they do have that that they are building on from the beginning. I'm going to read a few quotes from this and i just want to kind of get some of your reactions to them okay uh this is these are not in order as far as their appearance but uh just kind of want to run these from you bill says you are becoming completely unraveled elena no bill says you are becoming completely unraveled Elena says, I am completely raveled. What what do you feel that says about them and their dynamic? Well, Bill is seeing that Elena, he's seeing a shift in, in Elena's behavior after Mia moves to town. And Elena would really like to believe that she has everything under control. And I think she likes to be a bit of the puppet master Um, having everyone around her on strings and she can make them sort of jump when she would like. And Mm -hmm. so the sort of unraveled and raveled, you know, Elena would, she believes in her own mind that she's, she's got this in the bag Um, and she's going to figure out what's making me a tick. What's her secret? um, What Pearl's all about. And, you know, no one will be the wiser and Bill can really see her coming apart at the seams. Okay, our next quote is from Jamie Kaplan, who is Elena Richardson's ex-boyfriend from a time when she was at a crucial point in her life. She had to make a change and figure out whether she wanted to be a more bohemian free spirit or live the way that her mother did, right? So that kind of sets up 
this next quote. Uh, they're having dinner, and Jamie Kaplan, Elena's ex, says, what is it you used to say? Um, being right is better than sex? And what did Elena say in response to him? She said, it lasts longer, yes. Uh, and yes. What, is, what does that say about uh, Elena? Well, I think it's so interesting. In the book, Jamie Kaplan doesn't exist. And that's a mm. whole thread that was brought to the show. I think to illustrate Elena's shift from, you know, these Jamie and Elena go to Denison University together, which, of course, is where I went in uh, to college in Ohio. Um, and we see that at one point she was studying abroad in Paris and had a slight inkling to maybe stay and live a bohemian life with Jamie. Um, but really her mother's plan for them to move back to Shaker, move into this apartment that they've bought, you know, be a journalist at a local paper. Um, all of that has a has a harder pull for Elena and she eventually follows that thread. And so I think Jamie is set up as a way for us to see Elena's regret about what could have been. Um, and we see that in that great flashback episode uh, when she goes to meet him in Rochester, none of which is in the book. Uh, so I think it was really interesting for the show to really help us dive deeper into Elena's character about the regrets she feels and, mm -hmm. and how her life could have been different if the she cost. had followed a different path. Exactly. Yeah. But Jamie is pretty hot. So I was glad to see him <laughs> in the show. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it gives the situation a bit more gravity, a bit more weight to it. Yes, absolutely. Elena says, journalism can be so prescribed, you know, but I find comfort in the who, the what, the where. What does that say about Elena? Well, she's very, um, she's a little Nancy Drew um, or Harriet the Spy in that she likes to break down a problem and feels that there can be a finite number of solutions. And I think she gets a little distracted by this, um, you know, there's got to be an easy way to figure this out, kind of what makes these people tick. Um, she becomes obsessed by it. And so I think that's so interesting that as she describes this career, of course, it's, it's what she loves to do because she can fit everything into a little box about who, what, where, and why. And that's her job to flesh out. And when she does, she's done a good job. And there's not a lot of black and white that perhaps you find in art. Um, a, there's not a lot open to interpretation when you're dealing with quote unquote facts. Well, it's interesting. You said that she puts things in a box. I think sometimes she puts things in a grave. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, she does find comfort in the who, what, the where, the, the facts, and not so much the meaning of things. And she, it's able to, she's able to hide things that she mm -hmm. doesn't want known literally in yeah. this sense. Definitely. So that that's something that really stood out to me when she said that. It was like, hmm. <laughs> Here's another one. This one's from Mia Warren. How can we see ourselves when we're afraid to look at who we really are? Hmm. So this, I think, is at the crux of Little Fires Everywhere, is that self-examination, uh, which Mia does so well. 
She -hmm. does it in her art. Uh, She is busy doing it for other people. Um, And that is what is at the heart of, of every episode. Mia says at one point that she doesn't like to shoot portraits because portraits are for people that want to be seen a certain way. Mm-hmm. And she likes to capture people as they really are. And yeah, the, so that is at the heart of of everything that Mia stands for, is, is showing people for who they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, that is where these two are at odds, for sure. You mentioned this quote, uh, and I'm going to read it right now. Yeah, the thing about portraits is you need to show people how they want to be seen. I prefer to show people as they really are. Mm-hmm. And that is those two literally coming to head at that point. Because when this exchange happens, Elena Richardson, Reese Witherspoon's character, is asking Mia to take photos. But what she wants is a staged thing. What Mia would like to do is just be in the corner and literally capture everything as it is unfolding or as she sees it. But Elena only wants it, the presentation. That's what she wants. And that leads to trouble later when they're taking family photos for Christmas, (laughs) which we won't get into really big, but uh, yikes. Yeah, I think in Elena's mind, being an artist is not something she can wrap her head around as a career that makes sense uh, for a single mom. And so she has a solution of, well, why don't you take portraits? And that would be such a great way to make money and I can introduce you. And um, and Mia is like, absolutely not. For her, she would prefer to suffer for her art and keep it legit and not sell out than you know, have to do this sort of kowtowing to her client in terms of uh, who's asking for their portrait to be taken. Mm -hmm. Elena Richardson says, I take motherhood for granted sometimes, that they'll love you forever, that they'll love you at all. This is another huge theme in Little Fires Everywhere, um, which is motherhood. And, um, you know, we don't always get to choose who our mother is. And of course, that is at the very core of the drama that is swirling around in Shaker is this trial uh, for an adoptive Chinese daughter and whom should she belong with, her birth mother, a Chinese woman who gave her up or a white couple who has the means to take care of her. And so with that as the backdrop, this, I believe, is said by Elena, who has a daughter who has sort of fallen in line, followed her example. Is, to the T. To the T. Um, is pretty, quote unquote, perfect. Is headed to Yale. That's Lexi. And of course, Izzy is a rebel and she doesn't want to fit in the mold that her mom is trying to stuff her in. And so I think this is Elena reflecting on, you know, perhaps not fully (laughs) because she can't quite see her part in it, but she is reflecting on sort of her two daughters reactions to her mothering style somewhat begrudgingly, I think. Mm -hmm. 
And it's weird because we see the way that Elena is with her mother in the in the scenes that we see with her. She's not a fan of her mother or the way her mother does things. Yet, it seems like she's borged it up 2.0. Yeah. She literally has become her mother made over. The older daughter is doing everything she can to be what her mother wants her to be, including lie, cheat, steal, mm-hmm. and co-op someone's entire existence. Yeah, I think, and that for me is such a powerful, you know, I won't spoil the ending, but these children do get a bit of an awakening that they are on the same path. They are doomed to repeat their mother's example as she has done for from her own mother, um, unless they sort of wake up and shake things up and change things, um, which, you know, they do at the end. So... That, I think, was an interesting change from the book to the show, um, is the whodunit, uh, who set the fire. Um, But for me, I liked that awakening that Lexi has at the very end, where she screams, I'm not perfect, to her mother. And she screams back, yes, you are. It is bone-chilling, that moment. totally. That moment where she screams, yes, you are. It just... Just like, how can these people ever have Thanksgiving dinner again? How can they be in the same house? Just, just intense, intense, intense. I, the, my one of my the last two quotes here. Okay, my mom believes what she wants to believe. That's said by Izzy Richardson. Now, the chill that I get from from that is that it's just a denial of everything that she doesn't want to believe. That is so one hundred percent that she will tell you that whatever color you're seeing is wrong. It doesn't matter what the reality is. She sees things the way she wants to believe. Yes, and I think that in the show is in reference to Izzy's reflection on her own sort of burgeoning sexuality, and she is a lesbian, she is dating a girl, uh, none of which is in the book. Um, which I want to point out. So I thought that was another really cool layer that the show adds um, is Izzy's sexuality. But her mom has no interest in seeing what her daughter is standing in front of her telling her, essentially. You know, she often says that, oh, this is just a phase and, you know, puts uh, an article about Lilith Fair on Izzy's bed, you know, really doesn't believe her daughter when she says, mom, this is who I am. And I think um, for Izzy, that is really hard to feel rejected in that way. And, you know, so many kids are trying to figure out who they are and what they are and the choices that you and I had growing up, right? Like when I was growing up, there was no gay people in our town. There were people who were homosexual. There were people who lived a certain life but you couldn't actually actively say yes i'm gay there it was no there was no such thing i grew up in pamatuning valley outside of cleveland right on the cusp of pennsylvania and ohio and i graduated in 81 so it gives you a little idea there, at that time there just was no such thing you might as well have said that they were an alien right mm-hmm. so as things became more open and more more possibilities became possible because I've talked to people that I grew up with who they couldn't even find the words to say 
that they were gay at the time, right? So mm -hmm. basically we can only experience what is in our experience, right? We can only speak to that nine times out of ten. Mm -hmm. But it was amazing to see how Izzy is dealing with her sexuality and trying to figure out who she is and and what she wants her life to be and, and how she, she wants to express herself. But her mother just is not having it. No. No, because it doesn't fit the plan that Elena pictured for her family, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Just like when when Izzy is, you know, holding up her middle finger in the Christmas card photo, <laughs> even though she's wearing the plaid keds, um, that doesn't fit her plan. And so she just cuts her right out. It's such a metaphor for the way that she treats her daughter when things go not according to the plan that she had in her mind um, from when these little kids were we're babies, um, which is unfair to the way we grow and change as we become adults. Mm -hmm. And our last quote, and I've got some questions I like to ask you about this, but it's from Mia spoken to Elena. You didn't make good choices. You had good choices. Mm. Uh, I mean, this gave me chills. Absolutely. When I heard it said, and I think it is cribbed pretty closely from the book and it really gets at the privilege that Elena has had since birth. You know, she was born rich and privileged and got to go to certain schools, private liberal arts college. And um, she had an apartment given to her by her mom and really could pick and choose a career based on what she wanted to do. Um, and for Mia, she's never had that kind of privilege. Um, so the, the perspective of you didn't make good choices, you had good choices, you had good choices, you had a road paved with good choices. Mm -hmm. Several avenues you could have gone down and did and, and traveled back and it was all paved with good choices. And Mia just didn't have that. Um, you know, her parents cast her out when she was 18 and, um, Mia made some choices that she's had to pay for. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was like, boom, this is, this is the conflict between these two women, at least from Mia's perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you a question right out. Is Elena racist? Yeah, I think so. I think in the show, she is definitely portrayed uh, as a... <laughs> you would put air quotes around this as a well-meaning racist white woman um, in that she believes that what she is doing is well-meaning, but she commits so many blunders along the way um, that are really deaf to people of color and their experience. For instance, you know, including um, fortune cookies at Mirabelle's first birthday. Oh, just horrible. Yes. So she commits a lot of these faux pas, many of which were woven into the show um, because the book doesn't have that layer of racial tension. Uh, it's hard for me to say necessarily whether the character Elena from the book is racist. She's definitely, I think, classist. Um, but it was really interesting to see, although she believes she is a well-meaning woman she really commits a lot of um 
pretty egregious mm -hmm. mistakes. Well, see, a lot of white people, they get upset and they bristle at the phrase privilege, right? Hmm. Uh, because they've worked hard all their life, just like everybody else, and they've had all these things and uh, opportunities, and they don't understand that they've had the privilege of being able to drive while white. For example, I have a friend, him and I, we shared a car for a while, and whenever he would drive the car, he would get stopped in certain neighborhoods. When I drove the car in those same neighborhoods, I'm either a really great driver or... <laughs> <laughs> or he was guilty of driving while black, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people that are white refuse to understand or to try to understand what privilege is all about, right? Because they think that, you know, hey, I had it rough too, but what people don't understand is that there's a larger conversation than just your experience. Or like I was talking about earlier, you can only experience what is in with your experience. You know, whatever you experience is, is all you know, right? For the most part. You have to open yourself up beyond this. But I think that Elena, in her mind, doesn't see herself as racist in any way because she's always flaunting, look, I'm doing this. I'm trying to help out with that. And like if she were alive today, she might be, you know, carrying a Black Lives Matter sign. I don't know. But at the heart of it, she expects something for each of those things back. Yeah, I think um, Brian, who is Lexi's boyfriend, he's a young black man. Um, he is the one that really says this the best, where, um, you know, he says, yeah, yeah, your mom marched with Dr. King, like she told me a thousand times. Once Elena makes Every a... time I come over, she tells me. <laughs> exactly. And Elena makes a comment to Brian and Pearl, you know, that they would get along. And it's sort of like, well, Brian's an athlete and Pearl's a freshman and into poetry. Like, what exactly do these two have in common other than being black? And so I think in Elena's mind, she's like, well, yeah, Brian and, and Pearl would, of course, get along. And why, why wouldn't they? When really, when you break it down by personality, uh, the only thing they have in common is their skin color, which I think mm -hmm. Elena is um, incapable of seeing past. And I think that Elena's uh, approval of Brian dating her older daughter is almost like a badge of honor. Like, see, look, mm -hmm. like a lot of people will say, well, I'm not racist. We have my uh, cousin is married to a black guy, right? <laughs> but yeah, that's that's great. But it's almost like racist light where you can accept somebody if they're in your family or they're someone you work with or they're even your buddy. But you're one of the good ones. You see what I'm saying? And, yes. and it's, that's that racism light or safe racism that can develop so easily. We need to be better. Exactly. And off the Little Fires Everywhere soundtrack, as Abby mentioned earlier, here's a great version of In the Air Tonight by Judith Hill. moment 
was a sample of In the Air Tonight by Judith Hill off of the Little Fires Everywhere soundtrack available now. This film, it really is about parallels over and over and over and over again. You see one story reflecting in another story reflecting in another story. Whether it was someone having to give up a child and someone all, uh, not having to give up a child and so on and so forth, someone losing a child. So you see all these things where they're all connected. It's the same story, but different ways of things happening, right? So we've got the two families. We've got Elena's family with the four kids and her husband. And then we've got Mia and Pearl, her daughter. And the families mix. And Moody, the middle kid, for lack of a better term, falls in love with Pearl. But is he really in love with her or is he in love with that thing that he wants her to be? Because he doesn't seem to really investigate too much of her. He just dives right in. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they do develop a good friendship on mm-hmm. the surface and, um, and they, they bond about poetry and, and in the book, it's even more poignant. He, he gives her a notebook mm-hmm. and, um, and I think he does feel some ownership over Pearl and, and some sort of exceptionalism that she's chosen him to be friends with. Um, mm-hmm. and he is so at odds with his more popular brother and sister that when Pearl gets eyes for Trip. The older brother. The older brother, the popular jock. It is the ultimate betrayal for Moody. Because not only does the girl he liked not like him back, but she has picked, in his mind, the absolute worst 
adversary um, for Moody, which is his popular older brother, something he, he thinks he will never be. Well, it does make family get-togethers uncomfortable, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird because uh, the oldest daughter writes a paper based on Pearl's life and experience and co-ops it and makes it her own in order to advance herself in school, something that her mother would have done. Trip winds up in a relationship with her, and he uses her at first until he comes around to actually caring about her. And Moody is using her as well. All three of the oldest children in Elena's family are using Pearl in some way. Yeah, and I think that's exactly... Um... You know, they have they are repeating the behaviors exhibited by their mom, um, who is essentially using Mia, her tenant, as a way to feel magnanimous and good about herself. Um, And so I think, uh, you know, they are exactly mirroring the behavior that they've seen and um, and they don't they don't know any better and they don't, um, you know, some of them do have sort of a an arc of character development in, Mm -hmm. in the narrative. But um, yeah, it is pretty, (laughs) it's when you say it like, Oh, and, and Lexi's using Pearl and Trip is using Pearl and Moody is using Pearl. It's, um, it's amazing that Pearl gets out unscathed as she does. And as I mentioned earlier, you've got these two asteroids, Mia and Elena headed towards one another on this huge collision course. They also wind up taking each other's children in some ways. You know what I mean? Yes. So Izzy forms a very close relationship with Mia, um, who is the tenant. She feels like she has found in Mia a really a companion, a soulmate, a soulmate exactly, um, and a mentor. Someone who is following the beat of her own drum. No one's telling her what to do. She is an artist. She makes art. She makes her own choices. She has cool fashion and books and music and good taste. And she's lived in cities. And to Izzy, that is incredibly alluring. And so she spends a lot of time with Mia and actually soaks up a lot of Mia's advice and and mothering. Mm-hmm. And we see in opposition to that, Pearl, Mia's own daughter, um, at the beginning, these two are a unit and they are very tight and they have driven miles and miles in this car together and been the two of them against the world for so long. And it takes moving to Shaker and widening their circle to include the Richardson family that begins to put a few chinks in this armor of, of this mother-daughter relationship. And so we see Pearl beginning to mistrust her own mother and the things that she's told her about her upbringing, about her father, about her parentage, about her grandparents. And she begins to gravitate towards Elena, whom she sees as a trusting figure and someone who who looks out for her. And so these two daughters are pulling away from their own mothers and um, looking for that mothering in the opposite one. Mm-hmm. Which leads to this huge conflict. Boy, if uh, looks could kill, right? Yes. <laughs> There's so much eye murdering in this show. It's, it's insane. I, it's, 
Carrie Washington especially is such an actress who can do so much with just her facial expressions. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And it's a very strong cast. I have to give special shout out to the kids of the show. Yes. Yep. I see so much of a bright future, particularly in Pearl, Izzy, and the oldest daughter. Those three are just so amazing in what they're able to... They're acting well beyond their years, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, we have Lexi Underwood, who plays Pearl. She's outstanding. Uh, we have Jade Pettyjohn, who plays Lexi Richardson. And then Megan Stott, of course, is playing Izzy Richardson. And I can't wait to see what these three young women do later in their careers. They are mm -hmm. absolutely incredible young actresses who are actually playing characters that are around the same age as they are. So I didn't yeah. feel like it was uh, a 20-something playing a 15-year-old. They really are uh, young, young women who are so incredibly talented. Now, I have a secret that I'm going to tell you. Oh. When I walked into this, I didn't want to know anything. I didn't do any investigation like I do a lot of the times, especially if I'm doing something for show prep. I try to figure out, well, this is why this is happening, so on and so forth, right? So I'm watching this thinking this is season one, <laughs> <laughs> season one of a, of, a, of a TV show, right? And I'm thinking by the time I get to the seventh episode or so, I'm like, there is no fucking way <laughs> that they can keep this going. Yeah. There is just no way that it could continue on as a series without betraying what came forward in the first season. You know, and I'm not saying that there aren't, that there's never a chance of sequel, right? But it is it's so intense. I'm almost glad that it ended like it did in the sense that uh, that is this story, right? Yes. And I think, you know, that's where some missteps can occur when you're adapting a great book for TV. I think, you know, a few shows have done this. Big Little Lies, for instance, season mm -hmm. one follows almost to the letter the novel by Leanne Moriarty. And season two... Of course, they'd gotten to the end of Leanne Moriarty's book in season one. They were out of original content. And so they, the showrunners and writers, took it in their own direction. And I have heard a lot of arguments that season two does not, of course, live up to season one. And so I think, I hope that they won't make a, a season two of Little Fires Everywhere, mainly because they told the story. Now, whether or not they choose to do that or, uh, you know, they they take these characters into the future um, of, is, of course, up to Hulu and, and Liz Teagler, who's the showrunner of Little Fires Everywhere. But for me and for the source material, you know, we've seen it. And I think it really should be left as one season. Mm -hmm. I know that you have the hots for Joshua Jackson and his tidy whities I do. <laughs> It was interesting to see him go from this guy who was so in control to because of the actions of his wife, he's trying to maintain some sort of goodness about himself to even helping uh, later in a, in a courtroom scene, much to the surprise of Elena. Spoiler, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when he's smoking, he's just like, I do not have one fuck left to yep. give. <laughs> I know. I think he he himself finds uh, the rebellion that we've seen in Izzy the whole time. And she calls him out on his shit. Like, mm -hmm. you're basically just putting your head down for 30 years until you can get out of this. 
And I'm not going to do that. And I think he's a little jealous. Mm -hmm. And so his smoking cigarettes is his own tiny fuck you to his wife um, for sort of trapping him in this world and then showing him how precarious it really is when she starts to lose it. Mm -hmm. So, and I thought the invention of Jamie, the ex-boyfriend, as a way to put a little restlessness into their marriage was an interesting addition in the show uh, where he finds the dinner bill and they've ordered, you know, champagne and lobsters and he gets a little suspicious. I thought that was, um, you know, that added a a further dynamic to their marriage. um, More weight, more weight to the situation. Exactly. And you also get the idea that he pretty much knew about it back in the day, but now it's being rubbed in his face. At exactly. least that's how he sees it. He's not, she's, she's actually not wanting him to know anything about it. But in his mind, you know, it, it's almost like a kind of a situation like, okay, so you cheated once, fine. Don't rub it in my face later. And now he's getting the bill. You know what I mean? It's just like, so he just starts lighting up those palm oils. Fuck it, I'm out of here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and we we see him so panicked, basically, when she leaves in the middle of the night to drive mm-hmm. to New York to find the provenance of this painting or this photograph. And he calls her, he calls the hotel, he's like, you know, freaking out. And then we get the benefit of the flashback episode, the following mm-hmm. episode, and we see, oh, she's done this before. Like, no wonder you're freaking out, bro. Yeah. You're, you know how this plays out. Mm-hmm. So... I guess we're going to grade the show. Where does this show come in? Like if you were to give this a letter grade, right? Oh, um, I, I'm a generous grader. I would give this show, uh, I'm torn. I'm, I would give it an A minus. Okay. Why? For me, I, It took me a little bit to wrap my head around the changes that the show made from the book. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think most of those changes were really successful in telling a really powerful story Um, and adding to, you know, what Celeste Ng made as as a beautiful cover song. I don't, however, like the ending... I thought the ending with the Shaker town map made in white flower with the cardinal feather in the gilded cage with Pearl's poem read over top, it was just a little much. Uh, I felt hit over the head with the symbolism of it all. And I thought, I thought the show could have done a better job of letting the viewer do a little bit more work than we were asked to do. I think um, it really laid it out for us thickly uh, in terms of like, here's how you should feel about this. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to give you another moment exactly like it, but the opposite. And so, um, you know, I thought we could have worked a little harder to make our own opinions about it. Yeah, because one of the things that you love about theater, movies, TV throughout the years is you don't always want everything exactly spelled out. Exactly. For example, there's a comic book character named Wolverine that used to be so mysterious and cool, right? And and then once they started creating all these multiple origins for him, he just stopped being as cool because I liked it better not knowing what the what the scary thing looked like. And this is almost a horror film at times. Yeah. 
I mean, we're not seeing anybody, you know, get chopped up with a chainsaw or people running around with a machete. But like I said, there's a lot of eye killing going on. And there's just moments where you can almost hear scree, 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 only it's done on a cello. Check the soundtrack, folks. It's there. <laughs> but it's it's all built to increase tension. Yeah. Just some of the things that happen in that scene, the night of the event, and that's how I'm going to call it. <laughs> where she says you are perfect she mm -hmm. screams you are perfect it is bone chilling it yeah. is it is like a uh, horror film without much blood let's put it that way <laughs> yeah and sadly the people that are being hunted and haunted are the people that you claim to love and in the house with you mm -hmm. exactly yeah there's a lot of psychological warfare happening in this series and um and I think that's what makes you tune in, you know, to the next episode is that um, thrum of drama and suspense and suspicion uh, that you carry from each episode uh, to each episode. So for me, that was very smartly done. But I think they could have left a few more blanks for us to fill in ourselves. I just didn't love how it was tied up in a neat little bow. So I would mm -hmm. say, you know, B plus, A minus, the casting of Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon, I mean, you very rarely get two unbelievable leading actresses of that caliber in one show. And I think the acting was really, really well done. And to be honest, I mean, Reese played a lot of crazy roles early on, right? Mm. But then it seemed like she settled into the rom-com gear. And like, that was all she was. And it seems like she's now taking... And she's also a producer now. She's she's she seems to be putting herself out there as far as not what you expect from her, right? Because it seemed like for a long time after Julia Roberts really broke and then Sandra Bullock beget Reese Witherspoon beget, you know, J Lo everybody was making the same movies, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There was a safety to it. But it's good to see Reese really expand. And she is a psycho in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, her company, Hello Sunshine, you know, invests in work written by women. And then she herself is playing more and more characters that are really complex women. Um, I think she started when she played Cheryl Strayed in the movie adaptation of Wild. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Who was, you know, very, very complex. And so to me, it is very cool to see her spending her time and money and talent on fleshing out the lives of these very complex and complicated women um, that aren't just one-dimensional. They're not just falling in love. Um, I think it's really, really important. And she's challenging herself as an actress as well. So mm. yeah, big kudos to that. So I recommend this film highly. If you want something that's going to make you feel all nice and warm, like the Pearsons over at This Is Us, this may not be for you. It is a beautifully well done thing that makes you ask yourself some questions, I feel. Yeah, I think and so. And that may even challenge some of your choices and relationships and thoughts on things. And I think that that's not a bad place to be. And it's also a, a great big junk food <laughs> at the same time, right? Like this is like nachos. This is... You know, it may not be the best food choice for you, <laughs> but there's all this fun stuff going on. And when I say fun, like the roller coaster rides and the screaming and the craziness. But it's so it's it's almost like really good junk food that might actually cause you to 
question some things at the same time. So yeah, that's that's an amazing line to straddle. I think so. It's hard to do, and they do it very, very well. So we're going to wrap up our discussion today. Uh, before we go, I want to tell you, if you enjoy the music that is on here, seriously, check out the soundtrack. You can also, there will be a link in the show notes or on the thread on Facebook where we will have the soundtrack that you can listen to on Spotify or where you can get it on Amazon or iTunes or wherever finer things are downloaded or sold. And check this out on Hulu. If you've got Hulu, why not, right? It's, it's, it's fun. And, of course, there's the book written by Celeste Ng. So you can pretty much enjoy Little Fires everywhere, however you want. Yeah, and then you can tune in to my podcast, The Adaptables, where we go episode by episode and recap Little Fires Everywhere and contrast it to the book as well. And uh, we've got Celesting popping in um, with her own thoughts on the book. So check that out as well. How cool is that? And I know about your show. There's no way we could do it full justice. So if you want more, more of this, Go over to the Adaptables podcast. Jump in, do a full deep dive. Tell them Ken sent you. (laughs) So I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Can you give us your socials and where you can be found? Yes, Ken. um, It has been such a pleasure to get to talk to you. But you can follow me, Abby Wright, on Twitter. I am Abby Wright. A-B-B-E-W-R-I-G-H-T and on Instagram at AbbyWright1. And of course, don't forget to follow Read It Forward on Twitter and Instagram at Read It Forward. Mm-hmm. Find us on Twitter at PopStaffTweets and to find us on Facebook at Pop, a pop culture podcast or Pop with Ken Mills. However you find us, we hope you find us. And uh, if you're listening to this episode because you are a fan of you, for example, uh, <laughs> welcome aboard. And it's been fun talking about this very fun show. Well, Ken, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. And yeah, anytime. I'll love to rehash any pop culture with you. So you can come back on a further episode and we can talk something else cool. Exactly. Before we go, we want to send a shout out to the universe. Lynn Shelton, one of the directors of Little Fires Everywhere, passed away recently at the age of 54. So we dedicate this episode to her. So check out Little Fires Everywhere. It is, I don't know how to describe it. It's a drama. It's a love story. It's a heartbreak story. It's a horror story. It's a sociological study. It's all of these things. What would you say it is? I would call it a sweeping family drama that examines nuances of motherhood and mother-daughter relationships and early love and sex and just playing dangerously with one another. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a roller coaster ride for sure. It is. Well, I want to thank you for listening to Pop today. We also want to thank our mutual friend, Lauren Passell, over at Tink, right? Yeah, we love Lauren. Shout out to her, and uh, we will do more stuff with her and with you in the future. Thank you for listening to Pop, your pop culture podcast. And again, check out The Adaptables. We'll see you on the next episode. Say see ya, Abby. (laughs) See ya, Abby. Thanks, Ken. And that's our show. 
Pop is an online, nonprofit pop culture audio fanzine made for fans by fans. Any samples of music, TV, or movies heard here remain the property of their owners. Pop, a pop culture podcast, is not affiliated with any products we review or discuss. Opinions heard here belong to the people who express them and may not reflect the views of the pop staff. If you like something that you heard, buy it at your local record, video, or bookstores, or wherever pop is found. If you enjoy the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm your announcer, Christine Wolf, saying whatever you do, make sure it pops. <laughs> <laughs>